It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with John Stossel. He's the winner of 19 Emmy Awards, five National Press Awards, a Peabody Award, and he's the New York Times bestselling author of three books. John's been at the top of his field in journalism since the 1980s, from CBS to ABC to Fox Business, and he remains at the top, even in this age of new media, with his work on Stossel TV. His YouTube channel alone has 800,000 subscribers who tune in for his reporting and interviews, and along with Burt Reynolds and Tom Selleck, rounds out the top three iconic mustaches of the last 50 years. John, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Doug. Boy, I don't feel like I'm at the top. I feel, as a libertarian, I'm at the bottom and getting stomped on all the time. But it's good to hear you say those things. Well, you are leading the way in, in voices. In the, it's amazing that the YouTube presence you've got is is massive and growing. Well, Facebook, I have a... My Twitter, I have a million followers, and Facebook was huge until the climate zealots got them to shut me down. But, have you been shut down on Facebook, but not YouTube? Right, not YouTube, and yeah. Facebook not totally shut down. They just throttle you. So we had the piece, got 30 million views, and we routinely got a million or three million, and now we get... 300,000, so from a million to thousands. Yeah, something is, something's going on there. It, it's like the yeah, whole if you story. want to ask about it, I'll yeah. tell the whole story. <laughs> well, let's first have a drink because that is a, uh, that'll, get us, that'll really get us rolling. I am happy to say this will be our second martini of the show, and uh, vodka martini with a twist. So I'll get started making that. That's good. I think it's disgusting that you push alcohol like this but i'm eager to get my drink it really it keeps the conversations nice and fluid this is my favorite drink that i order in restaurants but i've never made one for myself i just if i want a drink i just pour the vodka on, on some ice cubes okay so this is more of a restaurant drink for you at home well, it's, it's also more ice. elegant then. yeah well let's see i've been you know i had, i was a bartender by trade for a dry no, uh, but that's plenty. You poured okay. in a lot of vermouth. For those of you who can't see through the radio, he. Do we still call it radio? Radio podcast uh, audio. I guess audio, audio maybe. Just, yeah. Okay. 
It's all part of the elegance. Yes, it makes it taste better. Yeah, and the lemon twist. You've got two glasses. You you have a drink with your guests. The same thing. Of course. I uh, fortunately I've loved everything so far. No complaints on my end. I'm getting a massage after this, so this should all go together. <laughs> well, that you cannot get here, I'm afraid. <laughs> we'll go. You know, this is like we're we're bringing back the martini lunch here. For those of you who can't see through your radio or podcast, he doesn't fill the glass like they do it in the restaurants. Yeah, I didn't want to. You know, we can we can come back for more. No, no, Cheers. this is plenty. <laughs> Oh, well done. That is good. Thank you. Well, I wanted to start very early days, even pre-John Stossel. I read that your parents were Jewish, living in Germany between the wars, and then emigrated from Germany to America prior to, or maybe during Hitler's rise? Before 1929, uh, for economic reasons, because the Depression, at least my parents told me, was worse in Europe than America, and America was opportunity. My father came and cleaned and then repaired toilets at the Princeton Inn, and my mother did illustrations. She was an artist, and they worked their way up. And then where, where's the Princeton Inn? Is that, you were raised in Chicago. Is that in Chicago? I was raised in Chicago. The okay. Princeton Inn's in New Jersey, but it, they yeah. took a while to get to Chicago okay. where I was born. And uh, they raised you Protestant, though. Is that right? It Right. They claimed they never denied their Jewishness, and they just said, religion is stupid, it's pagan rites, and we just joined the local church so we could assimilate. Mm -hmm. But I think, although to their death they denied that they had any interest in religion, um, that they were hiding it because they saw what happened to Jewish friends in Germany, and they didn't want it to happen to me. Yeah. So you're in Chicago. You have siblings. I know an older brother, Thomas. I have an older brother. Yeah. Just the two of you. Just yeah. the two of us. And I read you described yourself as an indifferent student, uh, and yet you made it to Princeton. That's pretty pretty solid for an indifferent student. Well, my brother Tom was summa cum laude, so I think they thought that I would be like he was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I worked hard and I did pretty well, but I was not academically interested, so I yeah. wasn't as good. Well, and he so he went on to Harvard Med and and is a you know very successful uh, physician. But in Princeton, and then so you 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 began working hard soon after that because I know in 1969 you find yourself out in an Oregon newsroom. What was uh, what was life like in the uh, in the news business on the West Coast? Uh, it was pretty much like a local newsroom is today, I think. Mm -hmm. But I'd never watched TV news. I had no interest in it. I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. Uh, the Vietnam War was calling. I was going to get a lottery number. Uh, and I just interviewed every company that came to Princeton to interview people. And I thought, oh, free flights to Milwaukee to talk to the First National Bank of Milwaukee or Sears Roebuck in Chicago. And I did about 12 of these interviews and most of them offered jobs. But the one furthest away was a Seattle Magazine, and I thought, hey, Pacific Northwest, a free long flight. I've never been there. I'll, I'll try that. And before graduation, they went out of business, and uh, so somebody said, you want to work in our Portland, Oregon TV newsroom? Okay. <laughs> what would I do there? 
And they told me to research stuff for the reporters and the anchors. And mm -hmm. that's how I started. So you started out as sort of a gopher and a researcher. But did you get on air a little bit there on the West Coast as well? Because pretty soon you were recruited into the New York media market for CBS. Right. For two years, I just wrote stuff for other people. And I wasn't a good writer. I got my worst grades in English. And learning through fear of failing <laughs> worked out for me. And then they started asking me to go on the air and report what I was writing about. But I'm a stutterer, and obviously I've gotten it largely under control, but at that time I hadn't, and I did not want to go on the air. Yeah. And they pushed me. I eventually did it. I would do stories. I'd go cover the fire and write about it and track it mm -hmm. and sit with the editor, and he would snip out the stutters. Mm -hmm. And the idea of doing anything live was abhorrent. And one day they insisted I could do the 3 o'clock newscast. And I was blocking. So usually you can substitute a synonym for the we stutterers feel the block coming on. Mm -hmm. But it was election expenditures was the big story. Who spent what? And there's no good synonym for dollars. There's bucks, mm -hmm. but I have trouble with the plosive sounds. And bucks and dollars are both plosives. Mm -hmm. And I was still stuttering away. Yeah. Uh, and they cut me off the air because we were out of time. And I was so humiliated and it was terrible. And I was, I still haven't learned it, but nobody gave a shit. And Well, it's amazing to watch you on. over these last decades because no one would know. I bet listeners here had no idea you were a stutterer. I didn't know until we've known each other a long time. I know you've done a lot of work. It's the uh, the National found the Foundation, Stuttering Foundation of America you do some work for. Um, but I, I didn't know you could feel a block coming on in advance, almost in time to rescue it by throwing in a synonym. Which is a bad thing to do because it just makes you fear that sound more and more likely mm -hmm. to stutter on it next time. The, that group you mentioned is a, is a group, good advice group if you have kids who stutter. The one that helped me was the Hollands Communications Reconstruction Center, where for three weeks they reteach you how to speak. You sit in a room with a red light or with a green light on the computer and you make sounds two seconds per syllable. So talking to you like this, you learn to hit the sounds more gently. Um, there's an oscilloscope and the green light turns red if you hit it too hard. And what I was doing there is a half second per syllable, which is pretty quick because we were doing two seconds per syllable, which is really slow. That was still a second. Um, it was like we were mooing to each other, the 20 of us in, yeah. who would take the 20-minute breaks together. But that helped. That finally made a difference for me. I learned that I could get on the bus and ask where, tell them where I was going and mm -hmm. not well, have to. It's incredible and, and inspiring because you're such an effective communicator. You're both orally and with the written word. You're, you're, you're speaking so you seem so composed and deliberate. I, and uh, it just seems, I, I wonder if figuring out what you're going to say ahead of time allows you to sort of get it right. And, and I wonder if this, getting over this obstacle has actually helped your process more broadly. I mean, we, we all should be doing a little more thinking before we speak. It seems like that's a part of how you got over this. I think it made me value communicating and work harder at it and think about it. I mean, I'm not a natural talker. You've met my wife, and she doesn't work in this field. But socially, she's much more entertaining and charming. Uh, 
but I can at least get the words out now. I have different takes on charming. I think you're both equally charming in your in your own way. Um, I, I actually, this made me want to ask you the King's Speech, which is sort of the most famous stuttering movie movie about a stuttering problem out there. Was that accurate in the way they tried to? I mean, this is 40 years ago. The the science around treating this is probably very different then. But did you find that movie to be accurate? Yes, and nothing's changed in 40 years. The therapy he was going through was not the same as I got. Mm-hmm. But yes, that's an accurate portrayal. This episode you had certainly didn't slow you down because you rose in the media landscape on a national level. Uh, you moved from CBS to ABC. You're doing more consumer editing and reporting for GMA. But it's, don't undersell it, it really slowed me down. I started at CBS as a local station consumer reporter. And again, I could sit with the editor and they would snip out the stutters. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, I would do 20 seconds live with the anchorman, Jim Jensen. And I would wake up in the morning dreading that. Oh my gosh. That was, made me miserable all the time. This was before I got the good therapy. And then when I went to ABC, when Ruin Arledge said, get him. I had it in my contract, Stossel doesn't have to do live. Does live, to this day, does it still make you a little more anxious or, or no. you're fine? You've, you've well, conquered a little it. more anxious, but yeah. <laughs> I'm able to deal with it now. Yeah. So th- this 80s period, I, I also, we, as we know each other for, for a while, I have heard tell that this 80s period might be when you were getting summer houses with Arnold Diaz and out in the Hamptons having some fun. Was that a... That around the sort of early mid '80s period, and John Tesh, the other John Tesh, celebrity, right? Yeah, yeah. We were looking to meet girls, so we found <laughs> if you get a eight guys together, uh, the the house in the Hamptons is affordable. Yeah, and so that this was is, a good time. This was early '80s, and Arnold Diaz. For listeners who don't know, he's a big name in the New York market. Another uh, sort of consumer editor type guy, and a terrific guy. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. The martinis you, you, working. You are you Arnold and John Tesh. What was the year? Like early eighties. I'm bad at that. It okay. was a bunch of years ago. It could have yeah. been the early. Yes, it was early eighties, and then it continued with other people for yeah. in the late eighties. And it was chasing women in the Hamptons, and that was exciting, <laughs> unsatisfying because you I could never find the perfect girl, but we kept looking. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about one thing in 84, the, the David Schultz story. And I, I, you and I never rounded back on this, but we were at dinner at your place. And David Schultz was a professional wrestler in what was then the WWF, now the WWE. And this story came up and, you know, that basically this gigantic professional wrestler had knocked you around. And I thought, oh, this would be a funny story. And then I looked at Ellen's face, your wife's face, and she was reliving the trauma in her face. And I thought, oh, this is... Not a funny story. This is a serious one. Can you can you tell us a bit about that one? Yes. He, 6'8", 280 pounds. I was doing a 2020 story on how pro wrestling is faked because I was annoyed that some survey found a third of the people in the audience think it's real. I, mean, and, I was one of the, like, in the early days, I was the kid watching, you know, in the late 70s, I was just a little kid watching this stuff, thinking it was real. Right. And if you really did that to people, you would seriously hurt them. Yeah. And they're real athletes, and but they're actors, and it's all staged. And it took a long time at 2020. We finally found an ex-pro wrestler who would go in the ring with me and 
show me how they do the tricks and talk about how they would hide a razor blade in their mouth and cut themselves on the forehead because you bleed a lot if you I guess if you cut yourself on the forehead and I could throw him he was bigger than me and do flips because I would reach to grab him and pull up and he would jump and it would look like I was lifting him over my head and throwing him down and he would land with big noise on the mat because he didn't hit his back that hard. He was slamming his feet. It was mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And I just wanted to set the short the story up with a real wrestler who would say, yeah, we're real. This is all real. You're full of crap. And, yeah. and instead, uh, maybe because Vince McMahon told him to teach me, he'll teach this reporter a lesson. He claimed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was on speed, getting psyched for his performance and he said you think this is fake and whack he whacked me on the side of the head and when i Mm -hmm. stupidly got up again he whacked me in the other ear i i went back and watched the video of that which is available you know you can click on this stuff online yeah god bless youtube massive and he hit you hard that was crazy yes i hadn't been hit like that ever or since and it gave me i'm my daughter was two at the time or one and I and it, when she would cry it would make it hard for me to be near her because I had ear pain around loud noises for some time I was just about to make a joke about sure some excuse Ellen you changed the diaper but <laughs> <laughs> that it really is a serious story I, I should not joke about that but it was that kind of intrepid reporting uh, that kept you rising up the ranks so in 2003 you are uh, elevated, I guess, to co-anchor of 2020 alongside Barbara Walters. And I wanted to ask you about her. What was it about her that made so her so prominent? She was always, you know, still, she was in the spotlight for so long. What, what was it? That... She worked harder than most everyone else. And part of it was that she was the only woman for a while, mm-hmm. which made her unique. But I would sit with her on the set, and she would still be making changes as we were waiting to tape at 2020. And she would say, John, what do you think is better, this intro or that intro? And I would answer, and she would ignore my answer and do something else. <laughs> but she was obsessive, and I think yeah. that made her successful. Like real attention to detail, hard work. There's no substitute for it. We tell that to our kids all the time. It's as, as talented as you may or may not be. That's only a small part of the battle. You've got to work hard. That's the only way forward. And I did too, but I wouldn't sell it as a good parenting technique because she wasn't happy. Mm. And I was rarely happy doing the work because if you're always anxious, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And mm-hmm. you're trying to improve it. This is not a route to happiness. Yeah. Well, you know, with my wife, I, 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 say I joke that she's not a perfectionist but she's like an exceptionalist you know she doesn't have to she doesn't obsess over the last tiny little almost insignificant things but it's got to be at a very high level so you've guilted she me also over. has a memory and able to just reel off stuff that she once heard and that has me in awe you know she's got a, a memory for certain things like if it matters it stays in there if it doesn't matter it's it's almost gone it's almost like uh someone was joking with me the other day like the uh, Irish amnesia. They forget everything but the grudges. <laughs> so, and she's got a memory for certain things uh, that really is impressive. And I did things. an hour interview with her, and I just sat there. And, she said, and this guy said to that guy, and I can't do that. All right, so I'm coming in for round two. I don't know if you need a topper, but I do. You were right. It was, it was a small one. So we're going to 
I have a low blood pressure issue. And if I have more booze and a massage, it's a little risky. But <laughs> sure, give me a little more. Okay, good. I'll, I was going to put it aside, but there we go. Uh, so libertarianism, you are you have been really the standard bearer of that for a long time. You moderated presidential debates uh, for the Libertarian Party in 2016 and, and 2020. On this show, we don't get much into policy and politics, but I am very interested in process. So I wanted to ask you, with those debates, how did you prepare yourself to, that's a, that's a huge job. How did you prepare yourself to go in and moderate debates? It's not a huge job for a libertarian. There are certain issues we care about, and I just asked them, and then the candidates would give answers, and I might ask follow-up questions. To me, the more I think we should lead into that, and in that I got hired by Rue Narledge at ABC to be a 2020 consumer reporter, because that's where I won the em Emmys, saying businesses are evil, and this one should be shut down, and bad businesses should be punished. And I watched the government get involved and make everything worse. And I thought, what's going on here? It's, maybe the trial lawyers will help. I'll refer the bad business to the trial lawyers. And they would just enrich themselves and screw consumers more. And I searched around the intellectual literature about this and suddenly discovered Reason Magazine and the libertarian movement and people mm -hmm. who say... Government governs best that governs least, and that competition will solve consumer ripoffs much better than a Consumer Product Safety Commission or any form of government, and much better than lawsuits. And I became a born-again free market guy, and I've been annoying people ever since. Well, one, one thing that I've noticed about local news getting smaller and smaller, I mean, that news market seems to be shrinking faster than almost any other category. And there goes our local watchdog group. I mean, that really was one of the jobs of local news to make sure that things on a local level were functioning properly. And as local news goes away, I feel like we lose that element of watchdog. We do. And I say, so what? We weren't that great at it. There was a limit to what we could cover. And now we have the internet. And the amazing feedback you have from millions of consumers and ratings, and that's better than we ever were. So where, where on the internet do you go to follow along with this stuff? I mean, politically, you could go to something like Real Clear or Politics, but for consumer issues, how do you, or does it just sort of rise to the top of, you know, anything? It could be on Reuters. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, I sometimes would go to Yelp uh, if mm -hmm. I'm going to buy a book buy your book on Amazon. I look at the ratings, how, you know, how many stars, the comments, mm -hmm. which is not always a great guide because I discovered that women are more likely to, to write reviews and you get a lot of girl books that mm -hmm. way. But that feedback is pretty good. Millions well, of people who choose to say something and make a rating. Um so in terms of your, your messaging, I know you, you also give speeches. You're, you do a bit of the speech circuit for corporations or think tanks and things like that. And we haven't had very many speech writers on the show. When you get ready to – when you sit down to prepare your speech, what are you thinking about? How do you, how do you craft a speech for the speech circuit? I look at stuff I've done on TV and take the script and adjust it for the speech and sit there with a couple pages and 
I have a speech about freedom and its enemies, and I've given it a bunch of times now, so I don't have to work that hard on it. <laughs> that that reminds me of a story, actually, because I uh, that you've given it a few times. I saw Giuliani speak in the early 2000s, right after 9-11, and it was to 500-plus people over at the Javits Center, a big corporate speech. And he gave this amazing speech. He was saying that in the 90s, when he was mayor, they... Were, they became relentlessly prepared for disaster scenarios. So they had 30 different scenarios they prepared for. A bridge collapse, an earthquake, a fire in a high, raise, high rise, a plane crash, terrorism, all these things. So they had a big, thick playbook for about 30 disaster scenarios. And none of them applied to well, what happened. that's right. So, so 9-11, the morning of, he gets a phone call, Mr. Mayor. Two commercial airliners have been hijacked, smacked into the towers. So they're driving down, and he says to his team, you know, team, we're in uncharted territory. You know, we, th- there's no playbook for this. We're going to have to make it up as we go. And then he says, as the morning went on, he realized that wasn't true, that it was a plane crash. It was a fire in a high-rise building. It was terrorism. It was all these things that they had done elements of. And so the message of the speech was that if you are relentlessly prepared, whatever you face you can draw on elements of all the hard work you've done prior to cobble something together and address what you need to to face. And I was blown away. I thought it was the greatest speech. I was just so uh, blown away by it. So a year later, I'm talking with a friend. He goes, hey, I just saw Giuliani speak. And I said, oh, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, he was talking about how he made this playbook, and then the playbook wasn't any good, and then it actually turned out the playbook was good. It was like verbatim the same speech. And I was thinking, oh, man. But then I realized these speeches, it's not like, the Gettysburg Address, where you give it once, then you go on to do your things. It's more like fan of the opera, you know, like Giuliani has a show and for a big check, he will perform this show for you. And that show might have a life of two or three years before he needs to go write a new speech. And my speech, Freedom and Its Enemies, has gone on for 30 years. Because <laughs> the idea of the politicians wanting to take more of your freedom and control your life yeah. never stops. It's the same story with different examples. Yeah, yeah. That that fight will, will, never, will never stop. I remember when the Tea Party first came out, it seemed very sort of pure-blood libertarian values. Like, we want smaller government, we want less taxes, we kind of want to be left alone. It seemed like, you know, I was like, I, I'm down with all those things. And then it sort of got, you know, turned around into other things. But... Uh, yeah, that, that cycle seems to always be there. And and here we are at $31 trillion in debt. Government, Jefferson said, it's the natural progress of things for government to grow and freedom to lose. Yeah. All right, so we'll veer back off politics because we're, we're towing the line now. And we'll go back into process. A couple like sort of just tactical questions on process. Do you, are you sort of a morning coffee guy thinking, I've got to write this column, and I sit down and say, write it? Or are you living your day and you suddenly see something or a thought occurs and you say, that's my column idea and I need to go write it right now? Well, I'm now on a deadline. I release a video every Tuesday. So on I wake up Tuesday morning and three producers have sent me rough drafts of something that they're proposing. So I am not leaving bed. I love writing on my back in bed on the computer. And from wake up to about noon, I am rewriting those scripts. And then I track it on my little cell phone. It's amazing. I used to have to come to a studio like this. And I email it, I email it to them. And then they start rewriting a draft. Mm-hmm. 
And we go through that process about eight times before we get a final. But I never have to leave my bed. Yeah. When you're writing it, do you think about how it's going to sound? You put it in sort of the ear of your voice. So yes. you know, you're like, this is not how I talk. It's got to sound a little more casual or this way or that way. No, the, I rewrite it to be more simple if I can. But yeah. most of it is, all right, what picture are we going to put in that will really illustrate that? And how can I cut out? three seconds here or do we absolutely need this two seconds because we're starting with what they've sent me is 13 minutes and we're going to end up with six so a lot of it's taking stuff out that that's tight so it's all going to get into six minutes yeah um when you're writing this down are you are you in the laptop or do you do you sort of write it out by hand to start no, you, you're a write-it-out-by-hand guy, right? Yeah. yeah. You're freaking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a laptop guy. Yeah. I don't know how anybody wrote you, anything before computers. You know, it's interesting. I, so I, I just am not a very good typist. I'm a hunt-and-peck kind of guy, and that slows me down, and I, my thoughts are ahead of my fingers. Um, but you're probably old-school reporting, too. I remember when I, I got to college in 1989 and I had one of the first things in my hall of this old word processor. I don't know if you remember these things, but they had a screen that showed about three lines of text. Just insane. I think these things had a lifespan of like four years before something better came along. And then when you hit print, it would clack it out like a real typewriter and, and things. But I just never got to be a good typist. But I guess when you started in news, you know, you're typing into a typewriter and pushing the, the register across and things like that. So you, you got to be a good typist. I got to be a good typist in high school when I took a typing course and mm-hmm. I got to be fast. And in the newsroom, you would type it out and we would carry the paper to the editor and he would suggest a cut or two. And then that would, a five triplet, uh, five quintuplet copies would go to this person yeah. and that person, the editor, and one to the anchor who would read from that. Yeah. So your team, will they, they'll do a draft and you've got to sort of re edit their edits and things like that? Yes. Well, let's say like today I did a long interview with some of our video. It's like weird in that I'm easily bored and I left Fox because I wanted to reach young people. But I thought this live stuff was stupid. I mean, we owe more to the audience to take out the boring parts of the repetition. And this is what I did at 2020. And I was Mm -hmm. good at that. And I I wanted to do that again, so I left Fox so I could make five-minute videos because that's the length of my attention span yeah. and really make them entertaining and cut out the repetition and the boring stuff. Now we see with Joe Rogan doing three hours, the audience wants longer stuff. Your wife's pod, what the podcast we're yeah. doing now. Yeah. And I'm surprised to find my longer videos get do sometimes well. more views than the short ones. Anyway. So I'm, we're doing one with this potential presidential candidate. And so the producer will make a transcript of that and send me all the good stuff. Yeah. And from that, I will write a script that's maybe five minutes long. But in this case, we will also do a version that's 45 minutes long. So we'll see which does better. Yeah, well, that's, I, I do think there's room for both. Sometimes you put something on, you're cooking a meal, and you might be audio only. Other times you want the video too. Sometimes you got five minutes. Sometimes you got thirty minutes on a train, and you know it's people are consuming it this way though, and they're getting off 
you know, sitting on the sofa watching cable and, and broadcast, for sure. There are millions of people coming this way to the sort of new media age where you're... How long have you been doing the, the Stossel TV videos? About five years. Wow. I mean, you're you're early on in that. Not as early as Rogan, but you are, you're one of the leaders. Well, my son... Well, I was earlier than Rogan. I just wasn't as successful. He came and did longer things. And he doesn't use video much. He's just an interesting and genuine man who's just a great talker who's easy mm-hmm. to listen to. Yeah. But I was still making little movies. And you're also doing the columns. So you're syndicated now. The New York Post uh, is is a recent addition to your outlets for the for the written word, which are are terrific. I, I was just saying uh, some time ago you did one on the NBA and and China, which I thought was fascinating. I I I don't know if you're newly in the post, but I remember turning the post. I'm like, hey, there's Stossel with a, with a column, and it was great. Well, you knew we New Yorkers are so narrow. I've been in the little tiny Wyoming newspaper for. 20 years. It's just you New Yorkers are discovering yeah. me only now because the Post picked me up. What is great stuff. I'm glad glad you're in there. Do you ever go back and read your old columns? I mean, you could do like a Charles Krauthammer book of the things that matter. Just do sort of a best of Stossel and write a book. <laughs> That's a good suggestion. Like every Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's, you do story and charity. Then I go back and look at the old columns. I don't have to write a new one. I can just update this right. old one. That's the only time I read them. But it's so easy for me. I make a video every week yeah. and I've got the script there. All I have to do is assume that there's no picture and make it into a print version, which I don't have to start from scratch. And I've had five people doing research all week, so it gives me a big advantage. How big is your team now? Six people. Six people. That's great. So, And then do you have, I mean, you're, you're, there's sort of a general theme to your columns, I think, over, over time, like or, or at least a, a worldview. But are you, uh, how long does it take you to write one of these things? You, you sort of have a thought on Monday and when do you have to hand it in? I mean, it, you mentioned deadlines. How does that week shake Each out Each story you. takes about six weeks, and that's why I'm working with three stories in the morning at a time. And, you know, to, to do a rough draft and then watch it and rewrite it. And then I think, oh, this is great. Now, I've gotten all the extraneous stuff out. It's really going to hang together. Mm-hmm. The producer takes it. The editor cuts it. I watch it. And I say, this sucks. This is so stupid. How did I think this would be any good? And it's embarrassing to me. And, oh, wait a second. Maybe if I take this out and move this over to here, I can mm-hmm. salvage this piece. You'd think I'd learn and not yeah. go through this process. I've done it a thousand in, in times. In your 2020 days, you didn't have this level of control. Did you, As the even when you were co-anchor, would you get in at this level? Yeah. Yeah? I would write the script, and there would be an editor in the basement. They never saw the sun. And they were really talented professional editors, and, and they would often say, well, you know, instead of just starting with the words, how about if we put the sound ahead of it to shift people? Oh, I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. them. But I was always thought of as the pain in the ass because (laughs) unlike most of the correspondents who would just let the producer and editor do it, I would come down and I wanted to control it. Well, that's why you the cream rises to the top. That's why you... Uh... <laughs> the pain's in the ass. The <laughs> Barbara Walters and I. Well, that's right. Yeah, there we go. All right, so before we get into the lightning round, though, I so that we as as uh, we do on the show, we have a, a series of fun questions at the end. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about Max, your son, because I was at a school event 
where our daughter goes, and they were showing these slides up on the board to all the parents saying, we're going to do these amazing panels and information seminars for parents to figure out, you know, raising kids in the, you know, in the new world and the digital age and all these things. And I look up on the slide at the front of the room and it says Max Stossel. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so great. I've got to, got to call John right away. And, and then I was thinking, wait a minute, wasn't he applying to college like five minutes ago? How is he up here doing all this amazing stuff? But what, what is Max up to? Uh, my son, Max, who never read a book, uh, suddenly became a poet and was making money doing video poetry um and then suddenly he he before that worked for companies that service budweiser and places doing social media so he sort of mm -hmm. saw how these companies manipulate us and realized mm -hmm. this is what's screwing up the kids somewhat yeah. and he developed this presentation for schools that would guide them on how to deal with Instagram and social media and kids hurting each other. And I was skeptical. Like, what What are you going to teach these teachers and parents? And the, they don't, it's constantly changing. But I watched his Zoom presentation just a few months ago and I teared up and I wrote him, you know, if if 5% of me contributed to that, then my <laughs> life will be worth living. Because in one hour, he really explains how you can't cut your kids off from this. This is how they yeah. are with their friends. And if you ban the phone, you're sequestering them from their friends. But some are better than others. If you can get them to text with their friend, mm -hmm. that's much better than Instagram and TikTok. And what's the third worst one? Well, YouTube, they say, is not great. No, but... YouTube was not the worst. Um, but he taught, like, Snapchat. Oh, is, Snap, yeah, that's a... Is, that's what makes you feel left out, right? Because there's sort of, like, Snap maps or something, and you can see where your streaks. friends are, and then you can see, like, all your five friends are together, and you're, you know... And there's something called streaks, and where you keep a message going with some other people, and you, you try to keep it going every day, or you get cut off or something. And he asked this audience of a 1,000 kids, how many of you are on streaks? And all the hands go up. And then he says, how many of you like streaks? And all the hands go down. Uh, it really makes it clear. Look, you're doing something you don't like. And this company is like um, a slot machine, and it's just... They want your attention and they've learned how to get it. Mm -hmm. And be aware of that when you're participating in their stuff. And don't give it up entirely, but realize they're using you. You're not the customer. You're the... No, I'm getting that wrong. I'm going to shut up about that. But Well, I'm glad the Stossel big brains are out there addressing this. And Max is great. I, I was joking about him applying to college five minutes ago because it's just... It's the passage of time. You know, we, we've known each other a while now and I... I uh, had been thinking of him as more of like a college team. I'm like, oh my god, have that many years gone by? That he's yeah, he out was there a doing soccer playing monkey, and suddenly he's <laughs> helping kids. Did you watch his presentation? I haven't seen it yet. They just announced this, and everyone's very excited about it. We're all we all need help in this area. We're all trying because nobody's excited about it, but we'll like it once you watch it. <laughs> well, I, I we you know we talk about how do we address this, and our kids are just coming into it. Our oldest is 13 now. And he's actually pretty good. Like, you know, we don't allow really social media, but he's they're all coming into it and their friends are getting more into it. And so we've gotta we've gotta make a plan. Yeah. So on to the lightning round then. I'm gonna have a, a last of my refilled martini. Which I have to say, I, I did nail it. It's good. Favorite book as a kid. My brother gave me the 
Todd Moran Mysteries, written by Howard Peace. And that was my introduction to literature. How much older is your brother? Six years. He died recently. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, the book you're reading now? Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. I just finished that book. It's really? amazing. Well, I read that first, and then I went back to read Inheritance, which is her, you know, a memoir of hers. But I loved that book. It's really powerful. Yeah, I'm only a third of the way in, but it's grabbed me by the throat, and <laughs> it's great. It's I, I love it. I I read it and then grabbed my wife by the throat and said, "You should read this too." So she's actually reading it right now. Best concert you've ever been to? Uh, Billy Joel years ago. Was this after Glass Houses? After Piano Man? What year would you? Say that it was after Piano Man. I don't know what year. Joel Siegel, who was a media reporter at Chattanooga, he took me. It was my first concert in New York, and I just loved that. What, what was the venue? Garden or? Uh, Lincoln Center something. Lincoln Center. Wow, okay, cool. And then I went to a Talking Heads concert and hated that. But Have you been back to see Billy Joel at the Garden doing his, his no. you know monthly thing? No. I want. I haven't done that yet. I want to do it. My, the first album I ever got was Billy Joel Glass Houses, which I played oh. over and over, and my siblings wanted to kill me. Favorite few recent TV shows that you would recommend to the listeners? It's hard to pick, but I like the soccer movies. I mean, the series, Home Ground and Ted Lasso. Mm. I liked Sex Education on Netflix. Um, I don't have anything great to say about them, but it's nice that we have more choice. How much are you? You're not really a nightly, you know, watch a little show before bed every night, or how much? How much TV are you taking in? Uh, more these days, I, I I try to read and then I get tired of reading. <laughs> Ellen, you want to watch something? And yeah. she wants to watch all this lady stuff, and I want to watch detectives. So we those were things we found we could both watch. Okay, you know, someone on the show recommended Slow Horses the other day, and so I tried it, and it's great. It's Gary Oldman, and uh, it's a great cast. And it's sort of a British detective show. These this sort of cast off MI5 agents and they, you know. I, I, I don't know it. And I should also add that I don't know if you're going to get to it on your uh, quick questions here, but I really like Ghosts of Manhattan written by <laughs> Doug Brunn <laughs> and the tennis book. I, those were great. You are kind to say that. I was not going to get to that on the, on the questions, but you're very kind to add that in. Thank you. Speaking of you, I, I don't go back and read my stuff either. I just I feel like there's too many cringe moments in there and on my, my early work. But uh, Well, speaking of cringe moments, embarrassing moment of yours on live TV. Well, you ask about it already, but the worst, when uh, they cut me off because I was still stuttering on dollars because the only substitute was b- b- bucks. <laughs> was that the word that you started on? It was dollars at, in that moment? Yeah, Joe Schmo spent $300,000 on his election campaign. Mm-hmm. And this guy spent 200000 and I couldn't get dollars out. Mm-hmm. So we ran out of time. I, I wanted to ask, I just, someone just sent me the video of uh, Larry King interviewing Donald Trump. And, and Larry King interviewing who? Donald Trump. And, and Trump goes like, Larry, your breath is horrible. In the middle of the interview, I was like, my TV. And I, I just, it was like so classic in all senses. Have you ever noticed the breath of a co-anchor or a guest on your show? Yes, but I'm not going to reveal you it. Can, okay, this, this is like, you're so vain. We'll never, there's going to be a lottery one day to try to get the answer. Well, we're so rinsed in vodka here. Nobody's worried about our, our breath. Rinse, that's a good word. Um, final question for John Stossel. One piece of good advice. 
um, work hard, don't die. <laughs> I love it. This was advice from my brother when I was in high school. How to succeed. Work hard. Work hard. Be lucky. Don't die. From Thomas Dossel. I love it. John, thank you so much for coming in. What a pleasure. This was fun. Thank you, Doug. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. to take your career to the next level with over 150 graduate degree programs the catholic university of america located in washington dc provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person mind body and spirit whether your professional calling is in engineering nursing social work or any of our other exceptional degree programs encounter the best of everything that catholic university has to offer and discover the best in yourself learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash grad admissions Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.